word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. 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 Was the word. From the KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this season five ender of Word, we have some summer reading suggestions from Navajo detective literature to young adult fiction. It's very much a story of hope. Sometimes when the world is dark, children have that hope that adults lack. And adults might actually enjoy them too. That's why I get a lot of adult readers, because they want to go back to that time when the world was still your oyster, and it's not as complicated, they don't have as much baggage, and there's that sense of hope. Well, if you're sensing a running theme here, you'd be correct. From a storytelling standpoint, young adult books, because they're geared for young people, they always have to offer an element of hope. But first... Roger Scott is a Navajo writer whose 2016 novel, Burning Sky, was a finalist in the Arizona Authors Association Literary Awards. Moving Star is the second book in what will be a trilogy and is currently available for pre-sale. It explores what he describes as the black arts in Navajo culture. We caught up with Roger recently while he was on the road, and he began our discussion by mentioning he hails from Canyon Diablo, Arizona. My mother is from there, so you know you you are where your mother's from, basically Navajo culture. I wanted to ask you about growing up in a household with a Navajo Christian preacher, and just what that was like. For instance, were you encouraged to adopt a more Anglo outlook on life, as it were? Basically, a lot of the things that happened to my father when he was a, a shaman happened before my time, and I was born after he had converted into Christianity. So there was a lot of uh, drama there in terms of his pupils and those that are around them. And they came up against him. And I would always be there just watching him, how he dealt with the text and how he dealt with different things coming at him. So it was, it was quite an experience. And did that inform your writing at all? When I was a kid growing up, I just had a knack for writing, I guess. You know, book reports came easily. Uh, a friend of mine challenged me, why don't you write a novel instead? And that's kind of what I did. What is it about, I guess, creative writing? Because some people, for instance, they hate writing essays. They find creative writing to really open things up for them versus people that just say, hey, I'm not a creative writer. I'm a journalist or I'm really good at writing essays. I think for me growing up, I realized that I could articulate myself in written form better than I could verbalize. I could uh, get the feel of what the author is trying to say and able to express it in written form rather than kind of stumbling through words. Burning Sky, which was actually a finalist of the Arizona Authors Association Literary Awards in 2016, and the second edition of Burning Sky is available. This title, Moving Star, is the second book in what is going to be eventually a trilogy, right? That is correct. Uh, Moving Star continues the story from Burning Sky, and it revolves around my main character, which is uh, Steve Keller, and uh, he is a cop, a Navajo police officer, and he basically just head dives into a lot of issues that goes on under a lot of uh, the dark arts, you know, what is called Naye, which is what could only be described as black magic. So it's a continuation of that story. So that's one of the main characters that returns and, and sort of finds himself amidst the fallout of some pretty terrible events that have shocked the Navajo community. Tell us a bit about the conspiracy that unravels as a result of finding out about those horrific events. Steve Keller, as a young man, in terms of he, 
him growing into adulthood, he unravels that the, um, there was a lot of uh, witchcraft going on, a lot of um, dark arts, things that aren't really talked about in Navajo culture. So there's uh, shape-shifting and you know, the different ways of um, harming your fellow person. And he finds out that his best friend was involved in that. And that escalates further and further, and then he just gets more and more involved in things that he really shouldn't. And when he does that, it starts to deteriorate his mental and being. So that kind of continues through the story. What has been the reaction to uh, fellow members, for instance, of the Navajo community in exploring something that is, as you indicate, kind of taboo with respect to dark arts? Half of them basically told me, you know, you shouldn't be talking about this. You know, this is sacred. This is, you know, this, it's dangerous knowledge. You shouldn't be, you know, addressing things like this. And others are like, it's about time. You know, it's about time somebody talks about this. This is dangerous. This is destructive to the soul. So it's been a kind of half and half. That's interesting. And so the, the people that don't want you to talk about it, is it for fear of the knowledge falling into the wrong hands and that knowledge being misused by somebody who doesn't understand what they're really doing? Correct. Absolutely correct there. It's pretty bold, I think, to say, hey, I'm going to start out writing a trilogy. You know, some people are like, well, I had a really good success in my first book. I want to maybe do a sequel or maybe I want to do a prequel. Had you always planned to write a trilogy from the outset? Uh, Not entirely. Basically, when I started formulating the story and I started writing it and I finished a section of it, which is, you know, it turned out to be around 80,000 words and I wasn't done. You know, what, what do I do? Just continue it. And I had enough material for um, three novels so that it just became a trilogy there. I wondered, Roger, if you have had a chance to check out the Diné Reader, the anthology which was recently released. I haven't looked at it yet. Okay, because I was kind of curious if you had a reaction to just seeing the language in print. And I, I wondered if you sense that there's kind of a, I guess maybe a revivification of Navajo, the language that is, and what you think about that. Do you see that in your own circles? I see um, efforts made by those that um, that do not speak Navajo very well, and uh, it being impressed upon them to learn, you know, traditional Navajo, and not the uh, slang version that exists. And I see that a lot, and I see, you know, a lot of people my age, you know, people in the forties and fifties. They try to speak Navajo, but they're, they're missing things. They're missing the accent. They're missing the, uh, the finesse behind speaking that language. So they're actually t- teaching their children, actually seeking out native speakers so that they can learn. So that's a lot of what I'm seeing now. Roger Scott is author of Burning Sky, which came out in 2016. The follow-up is called Moving Star. Thank you so much for coming to Word and sharing with us a little bit about yourself and uh, also the new novel. Roger, thanks so much. All right. I appreciate it very much for having me. Thank you. You can find out more about Roger Scott on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. It's time to plan your summer road trip. If you have a vehicle that won't be a part of your trip to San Diego or Yellowstone, donate it to KJZZ. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. And thanks. 
Maybe you've lived in the Valley for years, or maybe you just got here. If you're curious about Arizona and have questions, KJZZ wants to know about them. Send us a question at qaz.kjzz.org, and if yours is selected, KJZZ reporters will investigate. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. We're putting a cap on this season by discussing some summer reads. New York Times bestselling author Melissa Marr moved to the Valley about seven years ago. Unfolding from four distinct points of view, Melissa's new tween novel, The Hidden Knife, comes out in June. I began a recent discussion with her by asking how long she's been interested in young adult literature. My first book I wrote in 2006 was Wicked Lovely. It came out in 2007. And I I didn't write it meaning to write young adult. I just wrote a book, which is pretty much my approach for everything. And as a result, I've written young adult and adult and middle grade. The one coming out in June is middle grade and picture books. And I'm currently working on a project for DC Comics. So I don't really like to be restricted by genre. I just want to tell stories. That's great, because I was going to actually ask you if you do sort of restrict yourself to genres, but I got to believe in terms of writing young adult literature, how do you put yourself in the mind of a child reader? Because you have to be conscious, for instance, of things like word choice and maybe not getting, I don't know, too deep into characterization. Am I correct about that? I don't think so. I actually think teenagers and and probably children, too, are some of the scariest readers out there because they have no hesitation of telling you if you're getting it wrong. So I think characterization (laughs) is pretty critical in a way that adults will let you hang out and gaze at your navel for a while and just, just linger on things. Whereas teenagers like, okay, why is this here? What's the point? And I appreciate that bluntness as maybe obvious as we speak. I'm not terribly filtered myself. So there there is a part of my voice that naturally gravitates toward the more straightforward. And I think I find that with younger readers more. The Hidden Knife, is that uh, what we would call fantasy? It is, uh, very much so. It's fantasy in all of the ways with the with the creatures and the their two different worlds and you know the idea of having this magical version of it, it's actually based on a combination of Prague, Edinburgh, and Amsterdam. I spent a month in Europe just sort of building the world. And so it's those cities mushed together with Kelpies and a chimera and and those sort of things and magic, of course. So this book, which is your newest, is coming out June 1st. And the reason I asked you about fantasy is because the way that people market books, they refer to it as high fantasy. And I guess I have been for a long time confused. I've simply never asked, what is the difference? Is it a fine line between what is called high fantasy and just, I guess, what I grew up with, which was regular fantasy? Oh, those are marketing terms. I <laughs> I don't think those are real people terms. Those are marketing terms in order to figure out where to shelve your things. Um, gotcha. I think that high fantasy traditionally means more Tolkien-esque. It's another world. Whereas what they were calling contemporary fantasy, which is what most of my books are, are set in this world, but there's things out the corner of your eye. Like you can see fairies out of the corner of your eye. And so contemporary fantasy is primarily structured here with that element that it's fantastic on the real world. High fantasy is an entirely different world. And then you can get into weird subgenres like magical realism and slipstream. And of course, there's historical fantasy. And it just becomes rather convoluted. 
I'm again, rather blunt. There's fantasy and there's not fantasy. I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty simplistic on that. Maybe you can tell us briefly the characters that are involved in this and sort of what the story is about. The Hidden Knife is a story about a little girl who loses her family and has to grow up quickly, which is very much drawn from traditional classic literature. My background is in literature. I taught uni. And then I have the child of an alchemist who's dealing with, you know, the sins of the father. He inherits a responsibility he doesn't want. And two children who are street thieves. It's very loosely based on Victorian England, which was my era when I taught literature. And so it's children that society has forgotten. So these four children are drawn together with the difficulty of knowing government secrets and having to make their way in the world, not knowing which adults are trustworthy. It's very much, I believe, a story of hope. Sometimes when the world is dark, children have that hope that adults lack. Interesting. And they're able to see a way to build bonds and friendship and find a way to bring justice to a world. It's not a sort of fight the dragon thing because I think that children often are being given these fantastic worlds in which the climactic issue like Voldemort and Harry Potter is rather huge. And that seems impossible. Whereas I wanted to write a book in which the the things they have to do, the bravery they have to do comes down to my personal belief of life that even small choices create a greater good. And every small choice these children are making ultimately leads to progress. Because I think that as I look at the world, my hope for the future is very much coming from that optimism of the younger generations and their belief that they can make a difference. So this book is very much rooted in classical literature, traditional folklore and fantasy, which is, again, what I grew up with, and putting it all together in a very, I think, optimistic way. Well, I think we could all use a lot of optimism, and maybe adults will actually read this. It's recommended for ages 10 and up. The book is called The Hidden Knife. Melissa Marr has been our guest for a little bit. I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about this book. And please stay safe. Be well. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tom. You can find out more about Melissa Marr on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. You rely on KJZZ. I like to hear what's going on in the rest of the world to understand what's going on in my world. The governor argues students have already missed a lot of learning and schools should stay open with appropriate precautions. It's very important that the federal government partner not only with getting vaccines to the states, but with helping states administer the vaccine. You can trust KJZZ for the perfect mix of BBC, NPR and KJZZ News. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. I first met Sarah Fujimura at a writer's conference for kids held at Kyrene Middle School a couple of years ago. She was one of four authors who conducted workshops. 
She's also an award-winning young adult author, creative writing teacher, and is the American half of her Japanese-American family. Sarah's 2020 young adult novel, Every Reason We Shouldn't, was named one of NPR's best books of 2020. And her new work, called Faking Reality, comes out in July. We began our discussion by talking about why she likes to write for young adults. I think the thing that I like the most is that idea of hope. And that a lot of the YA books have themes of hope and the opening of doors. So even if you're coming from a place that's really dark or very challenging, that idea that things can change, that the, the world is still open. So you can still dream about being a dancer on Broadway versus like when you're 45 years old, and you're like, no, my knee hurts and it's too late. And I used to be really <laughs> good. And so they don't have the baggage that a lot of adults do. And so that's why I get a lot of adult readers because they want to go back to that time when the world is, was still your oyster and it's you know not as complicated. They don't have as much baggage. And there's that, that sense of hope. Well, that's interesting you mentioned adults because I've always wondered this, and I asked a previous guest about getting in the mind of a child. But also, I think in some ways, to write a really good children's book, for instance, it's not unlike a comic. If you wanted to play to a wide audience, why not get adults interested in it as well? And obviously, we would love to have more parents involved with their kids reading because we know about the connections to reading at a young age and how that sort of shapes people's education later in life. Do you think like a child? Is it hard to think like a child or does that even really matter when writing a young adult novel? Well, I like to joke that my inner teen is stuck at 16 years old. So I look like an adult, but I'm actually a teen. So I I enjoy watching CW shows. I love watching anime. And I am a mature adult. I am a functioning adult. But I also have two children who are now um, 21 and almost 20. So when I started writing YA, I was writing for their cohort. Um, I was also a Girl Scout leader for 10 years for my daughter's troop. And so I got to see and meet all kinds of different kids. We used to have a lot of people come to our house. You know, we were kind of the hub spot. So I got to meet all kinds of theater kids and band kids and Girl Scout kids and anime kids. And that's my core audience. And that's not everybody, but that's my core audience. And that's who I write for. So I can listen and I can understand what's going on with them. And I can also use them as beta readers to tell me, it's like, is my slang off? What are you guys talking about right now? And it's because I started as a journalist first. It's just a version of that where I'm doing research and then I am reflecting back what I see. Your 2020 young adult novel, Every Reason We Shouldn't, was actually named one of NPR's best books of 2020. You are in a biracial relationship, correct? I am. And Mm so with biracial children, being in a Japanese-American family, how much does that enter into your writing? And was that an aspect of Every Reason We Shouldn't? Oh, yes. So not only we are a biracial family, we are also a bicultural family. So my husband is a Japanese expat. We go to Japan every summer to stay with my in-laws. So we are trying to be a bicultural and bilingual family. We're not quite there yet. My husband is bilingual, but the kids and I are still working on it. So that idea of Yes, we are American, but we also have a Japanese component to our lives. And so that filters into all of the books I write, except for my second book, Breathe, which was um, about the Spanish flute. And that's a little bit different. But the other three are all have um, the love interest is a biracial Asian 
Japanese specifically, usually a boy. And th there was a reason for that because you just don't see Asian boys as heroes in books a lot for teens. And so my son felt erased. And so he went you know, very quickly to anime and manga and Japanese TV where he could be the hero, the villain, the love interest, the smart guy, the tech guy, the foodie, the, the joker um, versus just the very small box that he can be in in the United States. So for a long time, I tried to, you know, have like these books published and I kept getting, oh, this is really interesting. This is really fun. Well, I just don't love it enough, which it sometimes is code for there's no market for this. In 2018, I was able to get an agent and like boom, 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 boom across the board. So my art did not change and my heart did not change. The market changed because people were now looking for books featuring Asian boys as either the hero or the and or the love interest. And why do you think that is? Just more exposure to Asian culture, more popular media? Yes, very much so. Mm. And I think it's going to even expand even more thanks to COVID and that idea that we've had more free time. We're watching more TV, you know, oh, finish Netflix. So that idea we're now watching um, television <laughs> right. shows from around the world with subtitles on. So you can watch uh, anime with your kids in Japanese. You can watch Korean dramas with subtitles. So people are watching and consuming things that maybe they wouldn't have in the past because they had much more limited time. So they they pick the things that they already know. Or the thing that makes me happy is when I see an adult say, oh, you know, my kid was watching some anime show and it's like, I'm just going to sit down with them because I'm tired. And, oh, I really like this show. This show is really smart. And that's kind of what I like to do with my books is like, you are not my core audience, but you can still enjoy it and you can still enjoy it with your team. Faking Reality, which is the title of your new work, comes out here in July. Is it related at all to previous work? Um, it's the same as in I have a biracial Japanese-American boy who is the love interest. And then the main character is one quarter Japanese. So if you are familiar with the HD TV show Fixer Upper, in my mind, it's like Fixer Upper meets this, you know, PBS is this old house, but it has kind of like a little nerdy twist to it. That's what their TV show is. And so we have like, a, you know, the kind of Chip and Joanna Gaines with, jo you know, that Joanna Gaines is, is biracial. She's half Korean, half white. So what one of her kids would be like. So one quarter and then how like they would fit into the bigger picture of the family business. And in my case, this book is the family business is coming to an end because her parents are older. And so 15 year old Dakota has to figure out who she is outside of the spotlight. And so she's literally been on TV since the day she was born. She was written into the, you know, the plot. It's a, you know, it's a plotless TV show, but that idea that there is scripting even in the reality TV. So that right. idea that her whole life has unfolded on their show. And now she has to go and be a normal teen and she doesn't know what that looks like. You're deconstructing that notion of quote unquote reality TV with the title alone and then what happens in the book, right? Yes, very much so. And I think it's interesting. So even if you don't understand the idea of being on a television show, that idea of like, you know, with the, the mommy bloggers who, you know, have done basically the same thing where their kids have been in the spotlight to a, a certain age. And maybe then when they turn 13, they're like, mom, I don't want to be on your blog post. I don't want to wear the clothes <laughs> that Target send over. And so putting that modern twist onto a, a favorite movie of mine, which is um, some kind of wonderful, which is that romance of oh, I love uh, that know, movie. Two, two best friends. And when your best friend falls for somebody else and you simultaneously want to support them, but you're secretly in love with them too. And just that added layer of like pain and angst of like, okay, and he's fallen in love with our mutual friend and now things are just really awkward. Well, thanks for that trip down memory lane. That really is one of my favorite movies.
I love Watts. And so I wanted to create a Watts-like character. So even though Dakota doesn't play drums, she, you know, she's a builder. So she's, that's why on the cover of the book, she's wearing work boots and stuff like that. So she's a builder, you know, she's always building things. Her love interest and her best friend, Leo, works in his family's Japanese restaurant. So they're both in the family business. It's just the only difference is that Dakota gets lots of money for being in the family business and Leo's family is scraping by and he just gets like the worst end of it. Faking Reality is the new work by Sarah Fujimura, and it's a young adult novel. It'll be available in July. Sarah, thank you so much for coming to Word. Thanks so much, Tom. You can find out more about Sarah Fujimura on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region get a lot of things delivered these days, and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this handy little podcast. Go to KJZZ.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ's Sun Up today. Set an alarm, get the headlines, listen to KJZZ live to start your day, and get the latest episode of the show. Family reunification is a good thing, right? Like, that's a happy story. But it's then, the goal. And then there's this other side where you have a foster family. It's on the KJZZ mobile app. Just tap the menu to find all the features. Get the app today at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our final guest this season is Kelly DeVos from Gilbert. Her fourth book, Eat Your Heart Out, comes out in June. We began our discussion by talking about how much writers have missed engaging with readers and other writers in person during this pandemic. We miss that stuff so much. I think it's been well over a year since I've been to any in-person book event. And it was just, I just am really, really missing it. Like all the conferences went virtual and it's just been so long since I've seen a lot of people or really just you know, been able to talk in person about books. So I'm really hopeful, like at some point in the future soon, we'll be able to get back to doing in-person stuff because I personally really miss it. Eat Your Heart Out is your fourth book and you're a young adult writer that comes out here very soon. And I wanted to ask you why you enjoy young adult literature, for instance, maybe more than other genres. Like a lot of writers, I began as a reader, you know, that's kind of like where my love of writing came from. I just loved stories And so I guess I grew up kind of reading a lot of Trixie Belden, reading a lot of Nancy Drew. And I found that the books that I read as a young adult really helped me navigate my coming of age experiences. So when I started thinking about what kind of writer I wanted to be, I really gravitated to the young adult category. I also think that from a storytelling standpoint, young adult books, because they're geared for young people, they always have to offer an element of hope which is sometimes different than in the adult category where it's possible for things to be more unresolved or more bleak. A young adult novel typically has to end with at least the suggestion that a positive future is possible. And I've always found that appealing as a writer. I could swear that you and my two previous guests have conspired because you've all used the same word, the same four-letter word, and that's hope. Hope, I mean, (laughs) that's just interesting to me because that is something that I never thought about. And as we're still amidst this pandemic, I think so many people, even adults, would be looking forward to reading something that's hopeful. As far as this book is concerned, Eat Your Heart Out, of course, that's a cliche, but what does it mean in terms of this book and the story? 
the book follows a group of six teenagers who are disgruntled at the prospect of being shipped off to a fancy fat camp during winter break. When they arrive at camp, they discover that the things are even worse than they thought. The place is crawling with zombies. They may be the only six survivors and they have to both escape and figure out what's really going on with the mysterious pharmaceutical company running the camp. And so when I started thinking about writing Eat Your Heart Out, I wanted it to have a double meaning. Like it's basically got the meaning that we're most familiar with an element of revenge or kind of like a send off or something like that. But also in my case, in my book, it's more literal because the zombies are literally trying to eat my protagonists. <laughs> so that's kind of like where the title came from and what I was trying to, to say with it. I love it. Would it be fair to say then that uh, this is a horror young adult book? And if so, is it more on the spectrum of light or gore? I think it's kind of more on the spectrum of light horror. It does have some gory elements to it. There is some on the page, you know, zombies eating people, which I kind of think you need to have if you're having a zombie novel, but there's a lot of humor in it. I would kind of compare it to maybe say Shaun of the Dead or Scream or something where there's some scares, but also some humorous moments too. Is that because there is sometimes with horror this concept of nervous laughter, like that's how people can react to some things. That's how they get through a scary moment. Yeah, I think a lot of times humor is a coping mechanism for people in life. You know, I mean, I think that that in a lot of difficult situations, people tend to turn to humor. But I also think that when you're writing horror, you can't just have one grisly moment after the next. You do need to have some points of recovery or some points of rest. And so I think it works a little bit better, particularly when you're dealing with young characters, if you can have a little bit of levity in there in the moments in between that are really, really intense. Kelly DeVos is author of Eat Your Heart Out and other books as well. That book comes out here very soon in the month of June. Kelly, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thus, we come to the end of another season of Word. Portions of this program have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Awards. If you're already a member of KJZZ, thanks very much. If not, it's easy to become one. Please consider a monthly gift of $10, $20, or maybe even $50 to support fact-based journalism, informative discussion, entertainment, and music. You can make that gift of support at kjzz.org by clicking on the Donate button. Whatever is in your budget is the right amount. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.